Psalm 15. And as you turn there on behalf of the Bear family, I want to thank you for your care and your kindness to them in recent days as we've been lamenting the loss of our brother and uh, elder uh, Randy. I also wanted to thank you for your presence. Um, it was just so good to see so many uh, hanging out yesterday, uh, reflecting on how this brother had touched their lives. And um, I know that uh, the Lord was honored as not only the gospel was preached, but also as the church gathered and ministered to one another uh, through that time. Continue to pray for the family uh, in the days ahead. We'll try to keep you updated on the best ways to do that. But right now, prayers are great. Psalm 15 is where we are this morning. And let me read for us uh, these few verses. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Birds of a feather? Indeed. I um, saw this firsthand Friday night. Had an opportunity to go with uh, my son and daughter to a local football game. And it's been a while since I've been to a high school football game. But I noticed... <laughs> That old adage, uh, so true in just a few moments of observation. In fact, uh, me and the kids were, were talking about it, where you could just see these groups of teenagers naturally forming <laughs> and moving around like little amoebas. You know, nobody really willing to, to break off of the particular group. I mean, it was obvious who the jocks were insofar as they were on the field, they had the, the commonality of that football game. There were certain values that they shared that got them into that place with that uniform, with those associations. And then there was this, uh, this little, I don't know, call them a cult of girls <laughs> um, <laughs> that were like dressed to the nines, kind of. Um, but you could tell if there was a popular group, they were it. Um, and I won't say much more about them. Then there was uh, the other group, and again, this is no offense to any of you who may have been in the band, but you could just tell who was in the band. And, uh, and they were happy as larks, you know, just sitting down there doing their band thing. And I just, I thought, <laughs> wow, how true it is. You know, people will gravitate toward and hang out with those that they share a common affinity with. It, it's a fact, we do it for protection. I know that that's the case because we feel safe with those who share our values. We don't want to have to argue uh, with someone or be threatened by someone. And so we all keep a certain type of company. Which leads to an interesting question as we consider Psalm 15. If God had a group, if he kept a certain kind of company, what would it look like? Of whom would it consist? The options here are huge. Or at least their implications are. Does God particularly enjoy a certain ethnicity? You know, it seems that when you read the Old Testament that he highly favored the Jewish people, those who descended from Jacob and Israel. Is that his people? Is that the people that can feel close to him and draw near to him in his presence? 
Or is it more of a, a certain ceremonial group, people who maybe in the Old Testament honored certain sacrifices, uh, or in the New Testament uh, profess faith in Christ and have done the baptism thing and are partaking of communion on a regular basis? Is it a ceremonial affinity with God that we share? Uh, or is it behavioral? Is it a certain kind of character or conduct that, that he really likes? Uh, there's just people who have certain characteristics, uh, certain habits that, that he invites most openly into his presence. When you think about every one of these options, they all seem dis- rather disturbing. <laughs> like what is, who really is, is close and near to God? If we take the moral route, we all kind of examine ourselves and we're thinking, well, who is moral enough to be in God's good company? If we take the ceremonial route, it just seems so externally, externally religious and empty. Like, okay, just as long as the person, you know, dots uh, their I's and crosses the T's, they're in. And then, of course, the ethnic route is no comfort to any of us that I uh, look around. <laughs> um, we weren't born into the ethnicity that seemed to be God's chosen group, especially through the Old Testament. So who is it that keeps the close company of God. As disturbing as the question is, Psalm 15 provides an answer. And I will acknowledge at the outset that you, as a new covenant believer, will feel uncomfortable with it. I'm just going to go ahead and call out the elephant in the room before we get there. But it's in the text, and we're going to cover it. And if you hang with me long enough, I'll clarify So what are the qualifications of the person who is close to God? It's been clear in Psalms up to this point that there are a lot of people who are not close to God. I mean, you read Psalm 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, uh, and 14, and you're going to see like, oh, wow, God uh, puts a lot of people at arm's distance. Uh, Some some people are out of his special group. Uh, Psalm 12 was especially clear on this, where it was talking about uh, there's this generation of people who utters lies to his neighbor. Uh, God called it the generation of the unrighteous. And you kind of get the impression from reading these first few Psalms that, well, okay, God doesn't like a lot of people, (laughs) and he tolerates some. But in Psalm 15, for the first time, we're actually going to get a really clear picture of not just who God does not like, but who he especially likes, who he welcomes into his company. You see it very clearly in the first verse. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Uh, Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Uh, The the question doesn't ring too true to those of us in a 21st century context, uh, but for those who would have been reading this originally, they would have seen these two questions as clearly being uh, uh, this invitation into the special presence of God. Uh, The word sojourn is the word that we would use to talk about spending the night or doing a temporary stay, Uh, that thing you do with uh, Airbnb or a hotel. It, uh, It is sojourn in, and notice it says your tent like, oh, wow, I didn't know God lived in a tent. Well, you read through Exodus and Leviticus, you realize he did actually uh, erect a tent in which his presence would be made known in a special way. It was called the tabernacle. And so, it, this first line resonates uh, with those who remember that aspect of Jewish history where there was only a certain group of people who would be allowed into God's special presence, not just anybody would work their way into uh, the courtyard of the tabernacle. It's a, it's a metaphor for God's special presence. Who will enter God's special presence? And then the second question, that who will dwell on your holy hill? Now, this one's a little different for us. Again, we have another metonymy, right? When you have a, just a little phrase uh, that represents a piece of something that's a lot bigger, uh, when it talks about God's hill, His holy hill, We referred to this last week. Uh, We know the hill that it's referring to. It's talking about the hill on which the temple would have been built. It's another way of talking about, again, this special place of God's presence. The special place of God's presence. 
So the question is asked, who gets to go into this presence? Who gets to draw near to God in this way? Theologically, we all know that God is everywhere present, correct? It doesn't matter where you go, God is there. But this isn't talking about God's general presence. It is talking about His special presence. It is talking about relational access to God. Who is really near to Him? Who's the kind of person, and just pardon the loose metaphor, but I think it works, that God would hang out with? Who would He invite into His special relational circle? That is a huge question. Who does God favor? And when you read the text, you're going to see anywhere from 10 to 12 qualifications of closeness with God. And you're beginning to see now why I say that the text would be a little disturbing for a New Covenant believer. Because as you work your way through the list, you're thinking, I don't know that I meet all 10 to 12 of these things. But let's examine them first. For those who so desire to draw near to God... Examine yourself in these areas. And I'm going to simplify, for your sake, uh, these 12 qualifications into three overarching ones. I think they're related. The three areas by which we could examine ourselves today would be our self, our society, and our stewardship. Self, society, Stewardship. This list is not exhaustive, but it does give you something that is real, that is true. Are we the kind of people that God wants to be with? Uh, The self is covered in verse 2. Notice, this is the first thing he says, the kind of person who can have access to God in a special way is he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now, walks blamelessly. We know that walk is just, again, a metaphor for behavior, your, your lifestyle. Uh, we talk about someone who walks the straight and narrow. What are we meaning? Not that they walk in straight lines physically, but that they actually live according to God's standards and ways. And so here it says, all right, the person who behaves characteristically, walks regularly in a way that is characterized by blamelessness blamelessness. Now, this is an interesting word. It, the underlying Hebrew is that of being whole. I live, like this one because uh, it's, it's the word from which we get our word integrity. Integrity. When you hear integrity, you immediately think of a strong, upstanding moral character, correct? But you know, like the word Uh, Integrity is actually, its root is integer, Uh, one. Uh, For those of you who used to take math and you hated it, uh, an integer was a whole number and everything else was a fraction. (laughs) Uh, Integrity deals with this same thing. It It is someone who is whole. Someone who is not lacking in anything. Someone who is complete. Uh, Basically, they are unmixed. And so we say that a person of integrity uh, is someone who is wholly devoted to that which is good or right. They're not half in, like, you know, 50-50, two-faced. They are uh, what they present themselves to be. And the text says, okay, uh, God likes these kind of people who behave with integrity, who behave with wholehearted commitment to Him. Uh, the New Testament term that's the opposite of this is double-mindedness, uh, being uh, 50-50 or 60-40. This is being all in. And it does not, by the way, imply sinless perfection. It just means that someone is wholly committed to God. Uh, This scares us sometimes when we see this and we're thinking like, okay, God only uh, dwells with or will only relation or relate to perfectly perfect people, those who have never sinned in their entire lives. That is not what the psalm is communicating by any means. It just means that they are marked by wholeness. They are not double-minded. They are not divided. Um, The the standard is high here, uh, but it is not impossible. God, generally speaking, can look at certain people and say, yes, this person is devoted to me, this person is not. Can I give you an example? David, the guy who wrote this thing. He's called a man after God's own heart, but was by David any means perfect? No. 
But you would look at the overall pattern of David's life and you would say, here's a man who is wholeheartedly devoted to God. That's the qualification that's being presented here. One who is blameless. I I think of even in our own uh, day and generation of what takes place uh, when you, you buy a car and uh, in my case, in a lot of our cases, it's normally used cars. And so uh, we're typically doing Kelly Blue Book or something like that, the NADA. And then you have to like look at how this car is presented and there's like these different categories. There's like fair and there's good. And I don't know what the, the top one is because I'm never shopping in that category, but I think it's like, it's like excellent. Um, and this is like 5% or less of all cars. Now, when you see excellent, none of you are thinking that this, there is nothing absolutely wrong with this car. There is no speck of dirt anywhere. You just know that, generally speaking, this is a pretty high standard. This is the highest category. But when we see a blamelessness presented as a qualification of enjoying God's company in the Scriptures, I don't want you to immediately like, get uh, like immensely philosophical on this thing and start looking for molecules of sin in your own life. <laughs> it's just asking about, okay, are, are you in this category of person who is wholly devoted to God? It's clarified by its parallelism. Look at the, the next phrase. It says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Now again, uh, the hypersensitive consciences among us see that and think, oh, I've done wrong stuff before. I don't always do what's right. That's not what it's talking about. Do you characteristically do what is right? Are you marked by doing that which is right as opposed to that which is doing wrong? Does that make sense? Uh, Righteousness here is simply uh, doing that which accords with the law of God. And I would say that in our own generation, we actually need to do a better job at saying and teaching others that there is a standard of right and wrong. <laughs> it is not just something that is determined by your own impulses. Uh, God says that it's the law of Christ. There are rights, there are wrongs. Uh, the kind of functional ethical theory of our own day is called emotivism. Nobody uses that term, but they know what it means because uh, normally somebody says, it just felt right, or if it feels right, do it. Have you ever met anybody like that? Ever talked to people? Like, yeah, I just didn't feel that that was the right thing to do, or I know in my heart it's a good thing. I've literally heard people justify adultery on that basis. It just was in my, it just seemed like the, good, the right thing to do in my heart. My heart was no longer in it. Friends, this is not what God is talking about. This isn't some subjective righteousness here. He is talking about the person who is characterized by right as defined by God. God likes these people. He invites them into his presence. And we would naturally ask the question, though, well, um, okay, what do I do if I've done wrong? What do I do if I occasionally mess it up or if I occasionally uh, am off? Uh, friends, I want you to know if you're worried about me being a legalist up here this morning that even the New Testament is clear on this point. I'm not going to read it for you now, but I'd encourage you to jot it down. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 6. What's so interesting about John, he's writing to assure people that they are like sons and daughters of God. And he tells them that God is righteous and he's holy and he's light and that he's pure. And that we, if we say that we have no sin and there's no darkness in us, we're liars and we don't belong to him, right? But it still will come around and call for righteous living on behalf of those who admit that they're often wrong with God. The point is, friends... Are you, in your everyday behavior, practically marked by doing that which is right according to God? I know that that cannot be done apart from the enablement of Christ and His Spirit. But the question here is still the same. Are you the kind of person who is marked by right? And then there's one more uh, qualification for the self or the heart, if you will, and that is uh, in this last little line, 
uh, of verse 2, it says, and speaks truth in his heart. Uh, Friends, it isn't just about our orthopraxy, the things that we do. It's about our orthodoxy, the things that we believe, the things that we say on the inside. In other words, those who enjoy God's presence characteristically speak truth in the control center of their being, uh, the analogies that I used last week, uh, the cockpit of their conscience, the driver's seat of the soul. Uh, it is informed by that which is true. It is informed by God's Word. Is that true of you? Their actions and attitudes are informed by what God has revealed, not only in creation and not only in conscience, but also in the canon of His Word. And so here, friends, we're reminded of the importance of learning God's Word and God's ways and and being filled with truth. This is what Colossians 3 will admonish us to do in letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. So here we are. We're only a few lines through this um, consideration of the kind of person that God allows into His presence, and I would invite you to do a moment of self-examination. Does that mark you? Are you the kind of company that God would keep? So there's the self. God would not only uh, judge those that he would want in his presence uh, by their uh, selves, their hearts, but also their society, their, um, their relationships, their companions. The way you treat other people and what you value in other people also exposes the potential that you have for nearness to God. Look at verses 3 to 4. It says, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Now notice that, the slander with the tongue. Uh, slander here, it refers to damaging gossip that is usually untrue or unverified. I, the, sometimes I, I look at stuff like in a Hebrew lexicon and I'm just confused. I look this word up and the first entry uh, in the lexicon is the word foot. Uh, the second entry is the word spy. And then the third entry is what I just called slander. And so I started like, like digging around because I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means, but just like trying to figure out why, how did that end up being slander? And the reason why is because the, <laughs> the word pictures somebody going about on foot to gather information for a campaign. Do you see the connection now? What the text is actually conveying is, or prohibiting, is, is the kind of person who tries to put themselves in, in the right place at the right time to hear the wrong things so that they could potentially use it for war, make themselves look better. God is saying, I don't, that person is not invited into my presence. This cannot mark one who will be with me. God will not invite someone into his presence who is adept at smear campaigns. Or I would say it this way, a sharp tongue is an illegal firearm in the government of God. And I know we all kind of joke around about our own faults and failures, but friends, that's not one worth joking about. If people like to think of you or you like to think of yourself as as witty and critical and sarcastic and sharp-tongued, that is not a compliment. God hates it. James, uh, the, the brother of Jesus, will say it this way, that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's not bad enough, he continues. The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Which is why the text continues and says, and does no evil to his neighbor. (laughs) 
There is actually God's concern isn't just about what you say, but it's about what you do. But the way that Hebrew parallelism works is we have this thing about not slandering and then this no doing evil to your neighbor. And then he mentions another one about not insulting people. And the doing evil here probably has more to do with your words than your ways. I mean, I think everyone in the room knows not to just go randomly punch someone in the face. But we may not be as careful about our unguarded words, whether it be to their face or behind their backs. It says God doesn't want that type of person in his presence. It continues, by the way. It's relentless. It says, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Again, we see this concern for how we talk or listen uh, around those around us. But notice I added the word there, listen. A friend here, by the way, just simply means another person. It means somebody that's close to you. Somebody, that, to modernize this, that's in your sphere of influence. And, and what you want to do here is notice the word reproach or insult. It means exactly what you think it means. A cutting taunt, scorn, sharp criticism, a personal attack. But here's what's fascinating to me. The righteous person, the person who is invited into God's presence... will not only avoid inciting these kind of things, he or she will avoid indulging in them. It's there in the text. You see it. Look carefully at what it says. It doesn't just mention slander. It says, excuse me, reproach. It says, who does not take up a reproach against his friend. The, the idea of taking up a reproach hints that such a person has not in any way contributed to the slander or the gossip or spread the rumor. Someone else may lay it down, let me put it this way, but this person will not pick it up. In fact, I think they'd stomp it down. If, if I know Proverbs uh, well enough, I think that this one probably sums up so many more, 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. God loves it. When we make each other look good and keep each other from looking bad. <laughs> That's the kind of person that he invites into his presence. And friends, my, just pastorally, my heart burns at this point. Not because I'm concerned about anybody in particular. I don't know of any vicious gossip flying around the church at any moment. <laughs> I'm not going to use this as some kind of bully pulpit. But in churches like ours... This would be a very easy thing to do. And I've prayed, I prayed this week that God would protect us. That the Spirit would sanctify our tongues and our ears. That we would, as a church family, live out what it says in our covenant. To work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Walking together in brotherly love. Exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. And faithfully admonishing and correcting one another as occasion may require. That takes words. The right words. Ephesians 4, 29 to 32 comes to mind. Where it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Notice that, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You don't see that phrase very often. But in the context of how we speak about those around us, it says that we have the potential to grieve the Spirit of God, to put Him in mourning, just like this family who was sitting here the other day. What would grieve the Holy Spirit of God? The text continues, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Rather, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the truth, friends. We haven't talked about it in a while. But the truth is, for some, this may mean there needs to be repentance. For some of us, this may need continued prayer for protection. It happens so easy. I know that my own family has heard me at times <laughs> say things that aren't the kindest, to put it nicely. 
But what I want you to understand is that these aren't preferences, friends. These aren't, prefer- these aren't the things that God prefers for those who hang out with him, for those who enter his, prefer- uh, his presence. These are non-negotiables. Uh, preferences are those things that just kind of get on your nerves. You know, you live with other people, right? And they do stuff that gets on your nerves. I mean, like a, a regular one um, that I know happens. Maybe it doesn't happen in my house. Uh, but I know it happens out there somewhere. Is someone not replacing the toilet paper roll? <laughs> or if they do, they put it on the wrong way. That's annoying. <laughs> you know, I, I wrote down some other things that are like preferences that, I mean, leaving toothpaste out, eating with your mouth open, smacking uh, when you eat your cereal. Again, not experiential here, just hypotheticals. And as, and as those things do kind of grate on us, you know, this is not what God's saying here. He's not saying, all right, if you're talking bad about one another, I really don't like that. These are what one organizational expert has clarified um, as permission to play values. Permission to play values. If you are going to be in this group, if you're even going to play this game, if you're even going to have this kind of relationship you will not transgress regularly in these areas. You will not be marked by these things. This is not like ultra, you know, spiritual Christianity. This is entry level for those who say, yeah, I'm with Christ. Here's how you prove it, through what you say. In fact, these interpersonal qualifications continue in verse 4. Here we see that nearness to God is, is not restricted to how we conduct our interpersonal relationships, but also with whom we conduct our interpersonal relationships. Notice notice the compare and contrast in verse 4. The one who can enjoy God's special presence is the one in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Do you see the contrast? Now we're talking about relational values, not procedure, but value. The first two lines of verse 4 speak to this relational value, and there's clearly a contrast here between someone who is um, like despising this vile person and someone who is honoring the person who fears the Lord. It's, that's called antithetical parallelism. That's when the, the direct opposites to make the point all the more clear. And so, there's no better way to see into the heart of a man or a woman than to note with whom he or she chooses to spend his or her time or energy. Birds of a feather. It's real. Notice there's two categories here. There's the revered and the restricted. (laughs) Uh, There's this one group of people that are to be revered by those who would enter into God's special presence. And there's another restricted group that uh, is more stayed away from. Maybe resisted is a good word. I want you to first notice the resisted. The, the text here in our Bible says that the person is vile. Now, when I hear that, it, is, um, it seems so strong. <laughs> vile. This must be some unique category of especially uh, uh, and infamously evil people. Like, okay, I think I know what this verse means. We're not going to hang out with axe murderers, drug lords, and porn stars. But I don't think that the text is limited to whatever you would think of as the most extraordinarily vile. The word vile in some translations is simply uh, listed as rejected, despised. Uh, Those who are (laughs) reprobate, if you will, Uh, those who cannot come near to God, those whom he is actively uh, kept out of his presence. It is just those who are out of the relational favor of God as opposed to in the relational favor of God. It's way more broad than you thinking of the worst possible person you could think of on the planet. And I want to be clear about something. This is not to be pharisaical. We all know what it's like to have the uh, holier-than-thou card played uh, and to feel like, you know, somebody has 
uh, been rejecting or scorning someone who doesn't align with them. I mean, even Jesus, our Lord, was known as the friend of sinners. But what is here is not a matter of um, giving uh, your, your time or your energy, but it's a matter of how one votes. <laughs> uh, it's a matter of where one's loyalties actually lie. Uh, Friends, I think it's fair to say that we should all have pretty broad relationships with people who are in Christ and people who are out of Christ. Agreed? But what the text is talking about is who gets your vote, who gets your loyalty, uh, who are the people that you're looking for energy from and input. It means that God values the kind of person who resists what the New Testament calls the, the worldliness, the worldly. He avoids the company of influences of evil. And friends, we live in a culture and a society that actually values this very category that God says to resist. If, if you would just look around at, at the world as we know it, it is marked by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I think I could summarize it even more. Sensuality, materialism, pride. These are the culture's heroes. These are the the people that some are immensely attracted to. Uh, Their mantra is, and more summary here, sex, stuff, or self. They're about one of the three. And the text is specifically saying, that is not the person you're looking to have influence from. That is not the person that you want to be hanging out with. Uh, This is, by the way, most actors, actresses, musicians, politicians, business gurus. I mean, I think that it would be a, a good thing for us to understand that, yes, we need to have relationships with all these parties, but we don't want to obsess over them. Or, and these are real words, by the way, in the Oxford English Dictionary, to fangirl or man crush over someone who thinks in these ways. You know what I mean. When you obsess (laughs) over a particular person, like they're just your hero. And the text says, those who are invited into God's presence do not have these types of people as their heroes. Instead, there is a revered category. Who is the person that the, that, the, that the Christian, that the righteous individual uh, truly reveres, it's the people who honor the Lord. The people who honor those who fear the Lord. That's what the text says. Uh, the word honor is uh, interesting because it, it fundamentally means heavy. It means to make significant. And so when we talk about honoring uh, those who fear the Lord, we're saying that these people are substantive. These people are heavy <laughs> to me. They matter. They're not light, flimsy. Uh, They're the kind of person that has some gravitas with me. They have influence with me. Those who fear the Lord. And of course, we know that fear the Lord means to reverence Him. Those who treasure Yahweh. And by the way, it doesn't just say fear God. This is important for us, especially those of us who espouse conservative political values. Because this text isn't advocating for theism generally, it is advocating for the God of the Bible who is revealed in Jesus Christ. So it isn't that we revere those who just have generally positive notions about an intelligent being somewhere. These are those who believe in the God of the Bible. These are the ones that are revered. These are the ones that are treasured and valued. This is the type of influence that we seek. People who treasure the one and true living God made fully known by His Spirit and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's narrow, friends. And practically speaking, this means that we count Christ-loving, God-obeying, Spirit-depending people as significant and worthy of our esteem. I've shared this anecdote with you before that I got from a a little book when I was like 19 years old, Uh, but I've seen it play out so many times. You will be the same person you are today five years from now, except for the people you meet and the books you read. Make sense? 
I think what this particular psalm is actually like warning us about is the people we meet and the books we read. Who do we allow to have influence on us? Now, what I'm about to say is even more anecdotal. So you can disagree with this 100%, but just something I've noticed. It seems that the people you meet determine the books you read. Who you hang out with will determine the sources of information that you value. And what the text is saying is that those who would enjoy God's special presence or those who long to be influenced by godly, Christ-loving people, godly, Christ-loving authors. That's why I say, friends, that um, practically a church like ours is wise to have something like small groups and to encourage relationships. (laughs) If you are going to be the same person you are today, five years from now, you better hang around godly people who love Jesus. (laughs) And that's why we would invest in a book wall. Because we want to expose you to people who are, who are godly individuals who help you think carefully through certain topics. And here's a little known thing about the book wall, by the way. Uh, we actually have a little list there to tie together the, the books you read with the people you meet. Because if you read a book and you want to read it with somebody, you just put your name down. And we'll find somebody to read that book with you so that y'all can enjoy the relationship and learning together. This is what a church is. It it is just a repository of Christ-honoring relationships and input, and, and we have this together. And so the stewardship here is one of our relational influence and energy. It's not just about how we relate to others. Don't talk bad about them. But it's also about who we relate to. So we've seen two categories so far. Uh, the self, society, and now let's look at the last one and we're done. Uh, this is stewardship, what I'm calling stewardship. Uh, you could write down the word business if you don't care about alliteration. Our business dealings, the things we do from day to day. Uh, this is the second half of verse 4 into verse 5. Uh, notice it continues. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So here, here they are. We've got three different things, uh, three different ways of expressing our fidelity to the Lord in the everyday and the ordinary, what most people are doing uh, in the workaday world. Now, I like this because for those of us who are tempted at times to think that Christianity is rather an armchair thing, you know, like theoretical and abstract, it's about to get in your business, literally. Uh, It is going to be speaking to stuff that most of you deal with every day of the week. I've summarized the three things here as contracts, contributions, and character. (laughs) Uh, The first one is contracts. Notice he says, uh, the person who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That is a person who is welcomed into God's presence. This is beautiful and it is clear. Someone who swears to their own hurt. They make a promise, they make a commitment, even if it hurts them, they do not back out on it. They will not change. This is the the good old-fashioned integrity where one's word is his bond. This is the guy who uh, bids a job at a certain price and follows through, even if unexpected circumstances cause him to take a loss. This could be the kind of businessman who throttles back his marketing so as to not give their customer or client the impression that they will receive one thing when in reality they will have to settle for another. I think this is the kind of person who probably errs toward under-promising and over-delivering. I say this to the men and women of our church who represent Christ in a workplace You can read your Bible at lunch, you can pray, you can invite people to Jesus, but it means nothing if you're not marked by integrity. Pastorally, I would rather you not read your Bible, not pray, and not invite people to church and have integrity than I would you to kind of miff it up on both. 
Now, we understand, friends, that contingencies do arise, and uh, there are times in which we commit to do one thing, and it seems like we won't be able to get it out of it and do something else. I would say, A, be careful about what you say in the first place. But even Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, gives you recourse for adjusting on an agreement if needed. <laughs> it says, if you get under someone's hand, look, you go to them and you try to get out of it. But if they won't let you out, you do what you need to do. I mean, you do what God would have you do, not what you think you need to do. I came across uh, a few years ago a, a, a brother who actually helped me in this particular area. I'm throwing this out. I'm normally not this practical, but I will be today. <laughs> uh, something that I think will help us all honor our word a little better. Uh, we need uh, helpful categories for communicating with people, and he actually provided three that, that help us here. He said, we need to think of provision, plan, or promise. Uh, sometimes we're saying stuff out loud like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did this or that? And certain personality types will listen to that and they will automatically think, oh, he just promised me. <laughs> so what we need to do is, is work with people to be clear. Is this provision? Is this just me speaking out loud saying that we could potentially do this or that? By the way, your kids are going to note that. My kids note that. If I say something like, man, it'd be, it'd be really cool if, let's say I'm there for lunch, man, it'd be really cool if I was back by five o'clock today. That is not the same as me signing on the dotted line that I'm going to be back at 5 o'clock today. <laughs> uh, but they hear it as that, and I need to be clear, hey, I'm just making some provision that this is what I would like to happen. The second category is that of plan. Plan is, okay, I intend to do this thing unless hindered by some extraordinary circumstance. I, I plan to be home by 5 o'clock today. Uh, that's not I will be at home no matter what, but it's a higher category than provision, but it's not as high as promise. The final category is promise, the oath, the swearing here. This is when you're saying, no matter what, I will make this happen. Be careful with those, friends. We reserve those for very special things like marriage. <laughs> and then I know in business, you've got to do this too. When you sign that mortgage, you're saying, I will pay. Follow through on your promises. Then there's a second category of, of contributions. Notice that. He says, also, the person who's invited into the presence of God is the one who does not put his money at interest. Now, this, one's, this one just seems crazy because, like, any person working in the banking or loan industry is thinking, what? Does this mean that I cannot make a profit? <laughs> does this mean that I only give away free money? Um, I, I want to give you a cultural uh, context here. You need to keep something in mind. In its historical cultural context... This prohibition would have been warning specifically against profiting off one another within the same clan or family. That was the Old Testament law. I mean, you need to keep in mind something. They were all one big old family. They came from a guy named Israel, Jacob. That was their namesake. They were, they were all related to one another. And so the Levitical law in Leviticus chapter 25 and in Deuteronomy chapter 23 forbid them from lending to one another and charging interest. But they were actually allowed to lend on interest to other countries and people outside their family. So what does this mean practically? Carson rightfully notes, lending among the people of God was to be an act of mercy, not a commercial investment. <laughs> this is, there's a special way that we use our money among one another that we don't do in the normal for-profit world. And the general picture here is that we should be generous with our family, with our church family, not seeking to profit off them. But in the normal business world, we can do that. There needs to be a spirit of generosity. And I want to commend that here. For whatever concern I would express about things like gossip, knowing that they're always out there, thankfully, I don't sense within this congregation in any way, shape, or form people trying to like... Um, prey upon one another financially. That can kind of happen when somebody gets involved in a pyramid scheme, and then all of a sudden they worm their way into a church, and you're supposed to go to all their stuff and buy their, their things. <laughs> that doesn't happen here. You know what I've noted here, especially over the last few weeks? A spirit of generosity as people have been willing to give and contribute uh, to those who have been grieving, uh, those who are just saying, you know, no, here, use my stuff, take my things, just, do, just get what you need. Use my credit card. I mean, that kind of spirit is that which God values. So our contributions amongst one another matter. And then lastly, there's this area of character. It says, he will not take a bribe against the innocent. 
Um, I know that we're very rarely placed in legal scenarios in which we're bribed to (laughs) um, testify uh, against innocent people. But I think what this is mainly referring to practically is just um, looking to avoid positions that would put us in ethical compromise. Uh, It normally happens in in business scenarios where somebody says, okay, um, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, you know. Or I heard this phrase the other day. I had to look it up. I didn't know it, but now I know it well and I get it. Quid quo pro. Quid quo pro. If you don't know what that means, look it up. It's like, yeah, okay, I'll help you. You help me. It's all going to be fine. And that's fine if we can all help one another. But normally it's happening at the expense of someone who is expecting something, like the government. Don't play that game. If you are a businessman, a medical professional, a salesperson, a construction worker in Christ, just keep doing what you're doing with integrity and for generosity. I think those are the two prepositional phrases that would mark this qualification, with integrity and for generosity. You could be a homemaker, a student, a retiree, but do what you do with your money and your time and energy with integrity and for generosity. Because, here's the last line, he who does these things shall never be moved. The promise here is powerful that the person who is marked by this kind of character is stable. They are solid. All is well with them. Come what may, this kind of person will not be shaken from the divine presence. Things are good with them and God. They will not be moved. They cannot be torn down. They are solid. And this is why we read earlier today, friends, Matthew 7, verses 12 to 27. Some of you wonder at times, like, what in the world are they thinking with the Scripture read? (laughs) Many scholars believe that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was actually an exposition of Psalm 15. And so I want you to note the way that Jesus concluded his Sermon on the Mount. There's two different kind of roads and ways to live, a narrow one and a broad one. There's two different kinds of influences, false prophets who produce bad fruit and true prophets who produce good fruit. There's two different kinds of professions. There's one that, you know, acknowledges uh, the Lord And there's another that acknowledges the Lord and uh, one acknowledges the Lord and obeys him. The other acknowledges the Lord and just does their own thing. And then here's the last category. There's two different types of foundations. One is on the sand and that is the person who hears the word of God but does not do it. And the other is on the rock and they hear the word of God and do it. How does Jesus conclude his sermon Not by an altar call and just as I am, but saying, if you really believe in me, if you really trust me, it will come out in how you behave. He gets right to the fruit of the issue. We can talk theoretical root all day long, but he goes straight to where it counts, the behavior. God then welcomes this type of person into his true presence. The reason why this psalm makes us feel so uncomfortable, friends, is because we're only looking at this psalm. Have you ever been lost, <laughs> uh, like in a shopping mall, and you're trying to like, see where you need to get, and I just love it when they have the little star there that says, you are here. <laughs> um, and then you can see the bigger picture. What we're zoomed in on here is where we are. What we need is the bigger picture. So Psalm 15 is indeed focused on your behavior. I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to hold back on it. It is talking about the way you behave. But the entire Bible, both Old Testament and New, teach clearly that such behavior is impossible from certain beliefs. We can only be what God is inviting us to be here when we believe in the provision that he himself has given. 
In the Old Testament, what would have been assumed about the person going to the temple to worship? It would have been assumed that they were in special relationship with Yahweh, that he had invited them into his presence, and that they believed that as evidenced by the fact that they wanted to make sacrifices unto him. It was justification by faith. But here's what the reality was. If they believed, they would behave. In the end... God knows that, yes, they still need to make sacrifices. They still need to profess their allegiance to Yahweh. But what really matters is that they live it out. I wrote it this way. I think it can be helpful. Function matters over form. But this does not mean form doesn't matter. Function matters over form, but this does not mean form doesn't matter. The form of worship in the Old Testament, the sacrifices or the form of worship that we see in the New Testament that is so clearly faith expressed in Jesus Christ alone and then its subsequent signs of baptism and communion and all those things that we normally do, they, they matter, but they, they are means to the end of living a life that reflects the goodness and the glory of God. I'll give you one more passage. And you'll have to examine it on your own time. Ephesians 1, 1 to 2, 10. Ephesians 1 is fascinating because it talks about what happened in eternity past. That this, this bedrock of our uh, belief. Uh, God was working and he was choosing and he did something before we were ever born. But then when you get to to chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, you see that, okay, God showed grace to certain people. And then in verses 8 and 9, there's belief that's expressed, right? That that you're not saved by grace, I mean by by works, but by grace through faith alone. And then it follows with verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. This was the whole point. The belief was to lead to the behavior, and so the text is calling us then to examine ourselves. Is our faith indeed real? And it is a travesty when it's not. I close with this story. I told you that I've been reading the diary of Frederick Douglass, and I didn't realize it until uh, I got to the end. There's actually a special appendix that Douglas writes in because throughout the book, he excoriates the religion of the day, which is Christianity. But then he provides this clarification. He says, dark and terrible as is this picture, I hold it to be strictly true of the overwhelming mass of professed Christians in America. Uh, They strain at a gnat and swallow at a camel. Could anything be more true of churches? They would be shocked at the proposition of fellowshipping with a sheep stealer, and at the same time they hug to their common communion a man stealer. And brand me with being an infidel if I find fault with them for it. And then he goes on to talk about all the ways that they were being uh, hypocritical. But what I love here is he says this. He says, what I have said respecting against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land. And with no reference whatever to Christianity proper. For between Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. You know what the point is, friends? Do we know what Psalm 15 does? It keeps us from having a Christianity of the land. It is showing us that, you know what? There is no hypocrisy. That is not the religion of Yahweh. That is not who God invites to his presence. If you have all form and no function, you do not have a relationship with Yahweh. But if you truly have the form and the faith and you've expressed that in Christ, it will come out functionally. This is the person that God invites into his presence. Have you failed any of these ways this week? I have. You know what you do? You confess that. You repent of it. And you just keep pressing forward and representing the righteousness of God to the world around you. If this seems absent to you and you wonder, how could I ever live this way or be characterized by this type of behavior? You need to confess Christ as Lord and turn from your sin. And if you want to know more about that, talk to me. Talk to someone around you before you leave. But it's this type of person that is welcomed into the presence of God.
Let's bow our heads for a time of reflection. Just a moment of silence. If you feel pricked in your conscience in these ways, just confess that. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. If you think that I've, I don't even know if I'm in, in Christ, I don't know that I've been changed to, to behave in these ways. It's never been the character of my life to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Would you take this time to confess him now as Lord, to turn from that sin? We'll have a few moments of silence. And then we're just going to uh, close with a brief prayer. Father, indeed, you are righteous and holy. And in your kindness, you have invited us into your special presence. Your Son has paid our penalty. He has purified us from the ways in which we fail. And now he empowers us to obey. Lord, give us hope this week. Lord, help us to represent you in these ways. And for those who are outside the grace of Christ, may they come to know him even today. In Jesus' name, amen.